We're um, going to be beginning a new section of the Boundary Series. And in this one, we're going to be taking a look at taking on some really hard tasks. We've mentioned a few things about this before. How is it that we can improve? How is it that we can get better at doing what is impossible? Or what has been impossible to us? I think it's more important that we learn how to do the things that are that have been impossible to us than just the things that are regarded as being impossible. Because I want to see myself get past that. Well, in this particular passage, and I'm surprised we have not looked at this more, but uh, we did look at it probably a little over a year ago. But in Luke chapter 17, over verse 1, we want to answer this question. What happens when God asks you to do something and it just looks a little too big for you? But God asked you to do it. And, you know, we want to trust God. I mean, if God's going to ask me to do something, surely I would be able to do it. But how many of us have, in our Christian walk, have experienced times where we know God asked us to do something, but I don't feel I can do it. I know some people can do it, but I don't feel that I can do it. And so in this particular story, Jesus told the disciples to do something and all of them felt completely inadequate to do it. And so they asked Jesus for him to do something. You can kind of figure out how that went. Well, we're going to take a look at this here this morning. I listened to the people that are talking about all the things going around and I am amazed at the language that has been picked up. And I just want to uh, make sure, don't pick up this language. Don't do this. This is this will counteract all the things you've been doing to build up your faith. If you pick up this language and, and talk with it. How many have heard the, the phrases that are now going around? And they're in commercials. They're in um, written things like uh, all sorts of stuff. In these perilous times. Have you heard that one? In these confusing times. In these uncertain times. And I, here's the, here's this one. In these unprecedented times. And we just rattle these things off. I just hear people rattling these things off. Like I told you, we, we record, if we're gonna watch something on TV, we generally record it so we don't have to hear the commercials. Every once in a while we saw, see something live, and here come these commercials. And, you know, people are trying to be encouraging and, and help you out through all this stuff. And they use these words. I'll just take a look at those, those four. Unprecedented. That means nothing like this has ever happened before, which is hogwash. That is just absolute garbage that this has not happened anywhere before. Uh, far greater things than this have occurred. Unprecedented is just ridiculous. And uh, just because uh, this particular thing is a disease or a virus... Uh, think about the people who faced World War One or World War Two. Uh, far greater. So there have been things going on in our our past far greater than what this is. It is not unprecedented. It is not uncertain. Can you imagine going around and confessing to have the wisdom of God, and at the same time believing that we are in uncertain times? Why in the world are we in uncertain times? Because somebody said so. My God still knows what's going on. 
he's still called the, the book of Revelation. What's happening here at the end? This does not catch him on, uh, by surprise. And this stupid reaction that people are having to it does not catch him by surprise either. He knows this stuff is going on. He is not uncertain about anything. If we are uncertain, ask him. He'll tell you. He'll say, go ahead and do this. Don't go ahead and do that. We don't have to be uncertain. Perilous. Are you kidding me? Have you stood at the Red Sea with the Egyptian army behind you and now swords among you and looked at certain death? We're not talking about 2% of the people who get it maybe dying. <laughs> We're talking about 100% of everybody being wiped out. Can you imagine that? Perilous. They don't know what perilous is. Confusing. Only confusing if you let the wrong things in. When does the Word of God say the confusion comes? When envy and every evil thing comes in. Just keep that stuff out. You're not confused. Now, I'm not saying that anyone here part of Zoe Christian Fellowship has been picking up this language or saying it. I've never heard anybody from Zoe Christian Fellowship say it. I've never seen anybody put anything up on, on uh, social media. Uh, as far as I know, this is out of your vocabulary. And glory to God for that. But uh, I don't even want to hear it. If I hear somebody start talking that way, I just, nope, nope, just tune a deaf ear to it. I am not listening to that stuff because I don't think it's so. Well, we look at this story here in Luke chapter 17. And they had a small uh, ability to say, well, we're kind of confused about what Jesus says. I think it's kind of a perilous message that Jesus is uh, asking us to do. And uh, this is unprecedented. No one has ever been asked to do anything like this before. And we are uncertain as to how this is to impact our life. I could kind of see them talking about this. But anyway, let's pick it up here in verse 1 of Luke chapter 17. Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. Did you notice that it's impossible? I thought with God all things are possible. With God all things are possible, but this is people. People are the one who bring offenses in. God's not bringing it in. And he says, I know people. They're going to bring offenses in. Because they're not going to be walking in the things that they're supposed to be walking in. It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. So if you are one of those who brings the offense, the word of God says woe. Now you do have this on your side. It didn't say woe, woe. Or the really bad one. Woe, woe, woe. That's real bad. That's reserved for the end. But you got one woe out of this. Woe to him through whom they do come. That would seem to indicate to me that I need to make sure that anything I can do to keep offenses out from me, from me passing them on to somebody, I got to make sure that I don't do it. I got to become as unoffensible as possible. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't uh, offend anybody with the word. Jesus offended people with the, with the word of God, with the will of God. Uh, people are going to get offended at that. But as far as doing flesh things, Stupid things, selfish things. Don't be doing that. Stay away from it. It said in verse 2, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Now, I think you can kind of see the end result of what he's talking about here. 
And that's not a, a great end result, but he said it's better than getting involved in offending one of these little ones. Now you could see little ones as being younger kids, but you could also see it being little ones as, as uh, lambs, uh, ones that are new to the family of God. We don't want to be offending them in, in, the, in a certain way. You're going to say some things that the Word of God has said, and that may cause offense to some people, but that's uh, been predicted. That'll happen. Verse 3, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now when we look at this scripture here, this word offense or offenses, it comes from the Greek word we get our word scandal from. It is originally used, and this comes right from Thayer's, it was the movable stick or trigger of an animal trap. You know when you have the little uh, box and the little, little stick underneath and the animal would go in and somehow bump the stick and the, the trap would, would land on them? The stick would be the scandalon. So any person or thing by which one is drawn into sin is what uh, Thayer's is, is saying. That's offenses. Now, if you cannot be an unoffended brother or sister to others, you will not be a faithful servant to God. That's just how it is. I have to make sure that I don't walk in such a way as to offend by by uh, natural things, by things that are not what the Scripture tells me to do. If the Scripture tells me, don't do this, and I don't do it, and I offend somebody... That's not something that's on me. But I have to walk in a, in a way that I don't intentionally. If I see a way that I can, I can not be offensive, make sure that you do it. That includes your actions, your feelings. Don't let all those things get involved. Rick Renner had a translation on this. I wanted to read it for you. It is simply unthinkable. That you would allow yourself to dream that you could live this life without an opportunity to be lured into a situation that could potentially snare you in the feelings of offense. So whether you are offending someone or whether you are being offended, he's saying in, in, in this verse, it's really not possible to walk through this life and not have the opportunity to be offended. You will have the opportunity to be offended and you will have the opportunity to offend. But we need to make sure we keep ourselves out of that. So he set up basically a boundary here for us. Here's the boundary. This is the area of offending people and the the area of being offended. Stay out. Do not go in there. We don't want to, we don't want to do that. I also pulled this from uh, from Rick's book. An offense usually occurs when you see, hear, or experience a behavior that is so different from what you expected that it causes you to falter, totter, and wobble in your soul. In fact, you are so stunned by what you have observed or by a failed expectation. Isn't that where it is? The failed expectations? A failed expectation that you lose your footing emotionally. Before you know it, you are dumbfounded 
and flabbergasted about something. Then you shock, then your shock turns into disbelief, your disbelief into disappointment, and your disappointment into offense. Let me read that for you again. Then your shock turns into disbelief, your disbelief into disappointment, and your disappointment into offense. Now reading this, this verse there, verse three, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Now, most of us look at that and say, this is great. You've offended me. I'm out. I'm going to rebuke you. But the actual Greek word means a frank but gentle way of telling a person that they have done something you perceive to be wrong. Now, a lot of times when we go up and we rebuke someone, we are not gentle. We're frank. But we're not gentle. Or we go the other direction and we're so vague that nobody knows what you're talking about. That's not a rebuke either. They need to know what you're talking about. But you need to do it with, with love. See, most people, when they get into this area where they can be offended, selfishness comes over. When I operate in the area of selfishness, I'm operating out of bounds of where I'm supposed to be. And so I'm not speaking these things in love. And once I lose that love aspect, that's kind of something that tethers me into the area, the arena where I'm supposed to stay and I wander out to where I'm not. So he says, rebuke them. And if he repents, forgive him. Now the word there for repent is a very common word for repent. It's a compound word that means having a change of mind. In other words, I saw that I did something wrong I thought I was doing okay when I did it, but I've now seen I was wrong. I have had a change of mind and I am no longer going to do it that way again. You've turned the direction. I I see that's wrong and I'm not going to do that again. That's the word that he's using here. So, if your brother sins against you, we're not saying he sins against the word. We're not saying he sins against God. It says, someone who sinned against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Now, forgive means to, to dismiss, to release, or to let it go. To dismiss, to release, or to let it go. You don't hang on to it, but you remember what you did. <laughs> nope, we let it go. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. That's the statement they got the disciples. Now, put yourself in this. If somebody came to you and offended you, they didn't come up to you and repent. You went to them and rebuked them. And... In a gentle way, but frank, you spoke to them in love, letting them know what they had done. And if you did that and they said, oh, I did not realize that was the direction I was going. I am going to alter my course and not follow that direction anymore. I am sorry. Please forgive me. And you say, I forgive you. And not long after, me cannot be long after. If you're going to do this seven times in a day, 
you're looking at maybe in an hour, hour and a half, doing the same thing, and then coming back, and then you go back, wait a minute, wait a minute, we just had this conversation, and very frankly, but very lovingly, not out of frustration, not out of anger, deal with them and rebuke them again, and they say, I didn't even see I was doing that again, I am sorry, please forgive me. Now, how many times has that, has that happened to you twice in the same day? I would say most of us probably won't be able to raise our hand on that. But Jesus is saying, not only twice, seven times. I cannot even physically imagine this happening seven times in a day. But Jesus said seven times. This happens seven times in a day. If it happens on the third and fourth time, how many of you are sus- very suspect that this person is not sincere in changing their direction. Not sincere in their repentance. We're thinking, I don't know if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna extend this again. This, um, <laughs> this is a little much. This is, this is the fourth time. This is the fifth time. You realize five times we've had this conversation today? I know. I know. I'm, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And you do. And then they come back a sixth time and they did it again. I mean, I cannot even conceive of this happening. But Jesus said, if that happens seven times, forgive them. And he uses that word forgive. You let it go. You don't hang on to it. This is something he is telling his disciples to do. He just picks up and starts teaching them. Hey guys, this is what's going on. Now think about it this way. How many times have you disobeyed the word of God and come back to God and repented only to disobey something in the word of God before the day was over? Maybe even a third time. Maybe even a fourth time. So this is something that God has done on multiple occasions in a day. But it's kind of hard for us to think about ourselves doing it. You see, our offenses are our excuse. There are excuses for being faithful to our own will instead of faithful to God. I'm faithful to my own desires. I'm faithful to my own wants. I'm faithful to my own needs. Unfaithfulness to God is simply being faithful to our own will instead of His. That's just something I gave to you before. I also put this principle in your outline. You've had this one before. But if it's not worth addressing now, it's not worth remembering later. I'll tell you, that's a principle I put in my life. If I do not address it, if I do not feel passionate about it enough that I need to rebuke, I need to address it, I need to do something about it now, it is not something I will remember later. It's not worth remembering later. If it has value to remember later, it has value to address now. So if you don't address it when it happens, let it go. Now, anyone can rebuke harshly. I gotta learn how to rebuke without anyone knowing that you did. That's what I, that's what the Word of God is telling me to do. Be gentle. Be frank. But be gentle. Do it in love. As long as you operate in the area of love, this will work. Alright. Verse 5. And the, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now see, this is the verse I was drawn to when we're looking at boundaries. Increase our faith. What are they saying? I want you to take 
the area where I am limited because my faith is only so big and I want you to expand it. I want you to make it bigger. Increase my faith so that I can operate bigger. But this was what went on before. Jesus had asked them to do something that they felt they couldn't do. And they realized they needed more faith in order to accomplish this. You see, not being offended is a trademark of your faith. If you are constantly offended, you don't need a gauge. You don't need someone to tell you. You don't need a visit from an angel. If you are constantly offended, your faith is very small or non-existent. How much faith do the Pharisees have? No faith. How easily are they offended at Jesus? Real offended. Even some people who had better walks and better areas of faith still found themselves in the area of offense. Can can you remember Mary and Martha when Lazarus died? Were they offended that Jesus didn't come right away? Was Martha offended because Jesus didn't tell Mary to get get in the kitchen and help out? She carried a little bit of offense about that, right? But she had faith. But you see, it was a limiting factor for her. The more you walk in offense, the less you walk in faith. So the the trick is, get the offense out. Now, the disciples knew this. And they said, if we have to walk in that level of forgiveness, that level of not being offended, we need more faith. So you're asking us to do this. You're asking us to walk in this level of forgiveness. You're asking us to walk in this level of not being offended. We need more faith to be able to do it. What they're basically saying is this. Jesus doesn't rebuke him for it. He doesn't point this out. But this is what they're basically saying. You have asked us to do something that we are not equipped to do. Isn't that what they're saying? Jesus has said, this is how you need to to operate. If your brother sins against you seven times in the same day and seven times comes and asks you for forgiveness, you are to forgive them seven times. And their immediate response was, increase our faith. We do not have enough faith to do that. Jesus doesn't increase their faith. So apparently they got a little bit of deception moved in there because they thought that the amount of faith that they were walking in was not able to accomplish what Jesus said. Have you ever thought that something that Jesus either told you personally to do or gave you a general command in the Word of God, have you ever thought that you do not have enough faith to do it? I don't know if I can... I don't know if I can do that. I mean, I know that you want me to do it. I know that that's what you want me to walk in, but... I'm going to have to grow a little bit before before that can happen. I'm going to have to get a little bit more faith before that can happen. He's expecting them to walk in this now. They're expecting to have to grow first. Get more faith in order for that to happen. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say that this mulberry tree be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Hmm. He says, you don't need more faith to do this. What you need to do 
is use the faith that you got. Because if you have faith, even if it's as small as a mustard seed, as long as that faith is alive, as long as that faith is functioning in the area of life, you have everything you need to do what I told you to do. Can you imagine that if you just have a little bit of faith, you can walk so unoffended that if the same brother comes to you or sister, comes to you seven times in a day, and you rebuked them seven times. And they said, forgive me, seven times. You could do it. And it wouldn't even, wouldn't even test your offense level. Can you imagine that? That you have enough faith to do that right now. They said, now you increase our faith. Get us more. Expand our boundaries here. Add to what we've got. Now instead of increasing their faith, he gives them a little teaching on faith. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say that this mulberry tree be pulled up by the roots, be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now the disciples, they look at faith as a quantity issue. I need more. Kind of like with, with money, right? Money, we look at a quantity. The more money I have, the easier things are. But that's not how Jesus is looking at it. He saw faith as a quality issue. You, you only need a little bit. But if that faith is of high quality, this is going to be good. We want high quality faith. Not, not low, we don't want low quality. We need high. You get that high quality faith, you can do stuff. Now he says faith increases as a seed. Same way that a seed, one seed turns into multiple seeds. Faith is alive, it's not measured. I can't say, well, your, your faith is so many feet long. I can't measure faith. It's alive. It's always growing. As, as something that's alive, it can, it can die. It can be starved. It can be neglected. It can get weak. It can get strong. Depends on what I do with it. Now, faith is just is merely a tool given to fulfill the commands and service of God. He gave you that tool. And he told you when you got born again, not only was the love of God put inside you, there's faith there. You got some you got a little measure of faith already on the inside of you. That measure of faith is enough to accomplish what he's he said to do. Now, if you read Rick Rick Renner's things on the sick of mine or the mulberry tree. I've, uh, I went through to find some other things, kind of to verify some of the, the qualities he, he has. And I'm not sure if everybody went to the same source or if Rick Renner was the same source, but I'll tell you what, everybody's stuff out there is almost exactly, word for word, the same on this. But I'll read these off to you. You can write them in if you want to. Just listen, whatever you want to do. But here's some, some of the traits of the mulberry or the sycamine tree. Sycamine if you have the King James Version. Mulberry if you have the New King James if you have something else, I don't know what it says. Probably I'll just throw it away anyway. No, I'm only kidding you. <laughs> there's there's a, at least a, a couple of other good translations out there that's, uh, that I read. And I don't know what they all, all put, but not too many ways you can translate this. So first off, it's a large tree, 30 feet or higher. It'll get Its root structure is extremely deep. They have very deep roots, mulberry trees, sycamine trees. So that makes them tough to get rid of. They grow in just about any environment. 
sycamine or a mulberry tree can grow about anywhere. It doesn't matter if it's a dry climate because its roots will go way down. It'll grow in a wet climate. It'll grow if it's hot. It, it doesn't seem to make any difference. This thing can grow all over the place. It's a preferred wood for caskets. There's a number of reasons for that. One of them is it's so plentiful. There's enough of it around and uh, it's not necessarily desired for a lot of other things. So you would use it for the, the caskets because why in the world use really good stuff? I'm told, I've never tasted it, I'm told it produces a very bitter fruit and the poor of the land would eat it. But you couldn't eat it all at once. All you could do is, because it was so bitter, so all that they could do was to bite off a little bit of it and just uh, chew it over time. And this is uh, this is kind of like what bitterness is, or unforgiveness and and um, offense is you, you mull over it over and over and over again. Just keep mulling over it. And I imagine after a while, you kind of get used to that taste in your mouth. And, and uh, you know, people people like it. You know, some of the kids, they like that those sour candies. And once they get used to one level of sour candies, then they graduate onto an, another level of sour candies. And they're even more sour. And they, they begin to like them. I don't know why. But that's what they, they tend to... I don't like sour, sour things. One of the things on my list, I have a fairly long list of foods that I, I avoid at all costs, and one of those is celery. I don't know why in the world you want to eat celery anyway. It's a total waste of time. There's absolutely no nutritional value to the sucker. It's just, and it's bitter. It's, I don't like celery. I will pick celery out. My wife knows that she's making some kind of salad and she wants celery out. She likes celery. And so she puts celery in hers, but if she wants me to eat, if it's a chicken salad or something like that, if she wants me to eat it, no celery better be in there. Or I'll, if it's there, I'll pick it out. I do not like it. But some people like like that kind of stuff. But that's one of the, the traits of this. It's a very bitter fruit. Now this was a interesting one. And this is the one of the ones I spent a little more time trying to figure this out, trying to look this up. It is pollinated by wasps. You see, the, the wasp would come in and they would, they sting the fruit. And that starts the pollinization process. Now I looked high and low and I could not find anything more than stating this is how it does. This is how it goes. I kind of wanted to get more into the, how does that actually work? But no one actually told how it worked. They just said this is what happens. So a wasp would come over and they would get this going on. I didn't spend a long time on it. 15 minutes is a long time for me to spend on on second that sort of stuff out after that I moved on to other things. But if you want to take a look at that, take a look at how the sycamine or the mulberry tree is pollinated by wasps. And that's only after the, the sting. So they have to actually sting the plant. And uh, in the same way, we people get stung by bitterness. They get stung by offenses. And then we start the, the pollinization process. Once we get stung by an offense, we pass it on to someone else. And then we pass it on to someone else. And then they pass it on to other people. And it just keeps on going. So those are some of the traits of the sycamine or the mulberry tree. Let's go back here in verse 6. So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Now what he was talking about was a fence. What the disciples asked the question about was how can we walk in this level of not being offended, 
this level of forgiveness, this level of someone doing wrong to us. That's where it all started. He's talking about someone did something to you. It was wrong. It's pretty clear cut to you that it was wrong. You approached him about it. Now, if you listen to, to Rick on this, he tells you about a missionary he came through and uh, he wronged him. He doesn't say what the, the whole thing was, but he talks about how this missionary wronged him. And after a number of years, he was able to sit down with him. He brought another minister along and they confronted him on it and he would not repent. This missionary would not repent. Uh, but they did their part and he just had to do what the, the Word of God told him to do. Actually, the Spirit of God had confirmed it with him. He said, Rick, just let it go. He didn't let it go. He kept hanging on to it and then eventually confronted him. And then when the guy wouldn't repent still, he, he let it go. We gotta let some of these things go. It's gonna hurt you. You're gonna get those negative traits of the sycamine tree. But he says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say that his mulberry tree be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Now we, we go all over about talking about trees and moving trees and things like that, but his whole thing is talking about a fence setting in my life. That's what the whole thing talked about. Someone offending me and it's sitting in my life and it got rooted down on the inside because I didn't forgive. I didn't go and confront. Sometimes we just don't confront and we just, we sit on it. I didn't confront, so I don't know what all went on. And we, we sit on it. And it gets rooted on the inside of us. I get bitter. I get angry. They shouldn't have done this to me. I get hurt. So this is a, this is just the first area we're looking at of things that are impossible. And sometimes it seems like when someone has hurt us, it seems impossible for that to go. You're going along, you're just having a good old time in a day, and somebody brings up that person's name. You can just feel it just kind of take you all over. And how do you get that out? How do you deal with that? So Jesus is telling them, look, if you got this kind of faith and that offense tries to set in on you, because the only reason that you would not forgive them is if you got offended on it somehow. Well, I'm, I'm bothered by the fact that you did this again. This is twice now on the same day. Jesus is saying, not twice, not three times, not four, seven. Seven times, that's a number I don't think in the history of the world anyone has ever hit. Because understand, you have to go through all the steps. It's not that somebody cannot do something to you seven times in a day. It's that someone does it, you confront it, you forgive them, they do it again, you confront it, you you forgive them, they do it again, you confront them. Forgiveness, you have to go through that cycle seven times. I'm sure some people have had nasty things go on seven times in a day. But we're talking about the whole cycle. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say that his mulberry tree be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Now, I saw this note that, that he had on this, this before. When you take a plant, a tree, and you put it in the sea, it's going to die. Because plants want fresh water. You can't be giving them salt water. Now, there are salt water plants. Most of the salt water plants you ever seen the, the pictures? You know, they got the underseas and they got all those plants growing underneath there. You know that most of those things that you were looking at are not plants. 
They're algae. Almost all of it is algae. There's two groups of algae. And see, having a reef tank, you get real familiar with all the different types of algae. My tank has two different types of algae in it. One is called microalgae. If you've ever seen little brown stuff that grows up on, on things, that's a microalgae. It's actually a diatom. But uh, we, we kind of put in the classification of a micro microalgae. Uh, green, the green stuff that grows inside and turns the water green, and that's a microalgae. Algae. That's a green microalgae. There's microalgaes of different colors. But when they stick together, when the cells of the algae stick together and form what looks like a plant, it's called a macroalgae. Not a microalgae, a macroalgae. There's certain, I have a, what's, what's called down in the, the bottom of the tank, there's a refugium. This is an area where we grow macroalgae for the purpose of removing the nutrients from, it's all a bunch of science and I love this stuff. This is the whole reason I even have one of those tanks is just because of all this stuff that's involved. I love the science that's involved. The macroalgaes, the different types of macroalgaes, the different types of microalgaes, how you can get rid of them, how you can control them, and what you can do. And all this is just, for me, it is absolutely fascinating. For most people, they would be bored. So we're not going to spend any more time on that. But when you look at that and you say, well, there's a plant that's growing under the sea, it's actually an algae. Most of that that you see is, is an algae. There are a few plants that do grow in the ocean environment. There are a few. Um, there's one in particular that you actually put in a refugium. I forget the name of it now, uh, but they're tall. I mean, they get tall. And, but they, they just suck the nutrients right out of the tank. And um, I just can't think of the... It begins with an M. I can't think of the, the name of it right now. But they get real tall. If you don't have a big space to grow them in, then um, you won't be able to, to do them. But that is not actually an algae. It is a plant. So most plants cannot live in the sea, but certainly trees don't. Now, trees... They can, they can go into the area of the, of a river, but they won't survive there too long if the roots stay too wet. But they can handle that for a little while. But if you say to the sycamine tree, be cast into the sea, that thing's dying. Because you put it into the salt water. It didn't say the river. It said the sea. You put a tree into the salt water, the salt will affect it and it will, it will kill it. Because stuff that's used to salt water, doesn't do well in fresh water. And stuff that goes in fresh water doesn't do well in salt water. And just for, we'll do a little trivia science. Uh, anybody know what it's called when salt water meets fresh water? Brackish water. There we go. We got a good student right there. That's brackish. There's actually a whole group of, of, uh, uh, things that like brackish water. They like to be in that, that area. And if you've ever been up on Facebook and you saw that picture that has what looks like a muddy stream over this way and a clear stream over this way in an ocean, and this is where they, they meet, and they tell you in the, the, the thing, this is where the Pacific Ocean meets the Atlantic Ocean and the two different waters don't mix, it's hogwash, it's garbage, throw that thing out. Don't ever repost it. It's not, it's actually something completely different that was going on there, but people see it and oh, wow, look at that. Pacific Ocean salt water mixes just fine with Atlantic Ocean salt water. It has no problem mixing the, in there at all. <laughs> it's kind of um, kind of funny the the comments that you see from people on it. But anyway, we don't need to we don't need to be getting in all that. But if you take something from the salt water and put it into the fresh water, it doesn't do do all that well. I think I probably told the story at least once or twice over the the years, but it sure has been a while. Way back when when we lived in Hatfield. 
and we had the reef tank down in the basement, I had the particular, this is a prize of the tank. It was called a powder blue tank. It's one of the most beautiful tangs that is out there. But the problem with having a powder blue tang, besides trying to keep up with their diet, because you actually have to go out and buy romaine lettuce and feed them. And not everybody wants to go out and do that. But I, I, would, I did it. I went out and got the romaine lettuce and I, I fed the thing. But they're extremely susceptible to certain diseases, one of which is ick. Ick is a short name for ichthyrophytherius. Um, it's just, you know, that's what they call it. So most people don't want to rattle that off their tongue, so they just say ick. I-C-K. Not itch. I-C-H. I-C-K. Ick. And this stuff looks like salt, like you sprinkled salt all over your fish. There's a freshwater ick. And there is a saltwater ick. They are not the same. It's a parasite that attaches itself into the fish, and if not treated, they will die. Now, when you have a freshwater, you treat the, the ick with uh, copper, something like that that kills parasites. You kill everything, and everything is fine. No big deal. The problem is with a saltwater tank, you can't put copper in the tank. You'll kill all kinds of stuff if you put copper in the, in the tank. And plus the rocks and things absorb the copper and they keep secreting the copper down the road. So no copper in a saltwater tank can't do that. There aren't things that you can actually do to treat the tank for the parasite. So the best way to do it is to keep the fish healthy so that they have a defense against it. But one of the things when you, when you, when your fish gets this thing, there's a treatment that you have to do. It's very radical treatment. And my powder blue tang came down with ick. I was very sad about that, so I did all the reading up about it, what you had to do. And what you've got to do in order to get this thing over, the ick, is you have to take the powder blue tang out of the salt water and put it into the fresh water. Now what you have to do is you have to, you have to take some time and get the fresh water ready. The fresh water has to be exactly the same temperature as the salt water. And here's the real tough one. It has to be the same pH. So you gotta make, you gotta get that pH of fresh water up as high as it is in the reef tank, cause the reef tank has a very high pH. So you have to get that, that up. And so I got all that done, I got all the parameters done, and I caught the, which is no small task, to catch the, the powder blue, caught the powder blue and put him into the fresh water. You have to put him into the fresh water, I, I forget exactly what it was, it was a, somewhere between three and five minutes in there. And as soon as I took the powder blue tang, out of the water and put him into the fresh water little container I had. As soon as I did it, he looked dead. I put him in there and he just reacted to that fresh water and laid down at the bottom. You could see his gills going, trying to breathe. He just was laboring. It looked like I'm going to kill this fish if I keep him in there for very long. But this is what you have to do because you see the, the density of the parasite is... Uh, is is uh, different from the fish. So if you put him in fresh water, what actually happens is the parasite, the, the ick parasite explodes because of the difference of the density of the water. Now he will explode before the fish will. So the idea is to keep him in there long enough to explode as many of the parasites as you can and then put the fish back in the tank or if you had a quarantine tank, you'd put them in there. Uh, and, and bring him back from there. But that was the, what you had to do to get him, get him going on that. So I did it. He, uh, he recovered. And um, we still had our powder blue tank. But it was not easy sitting there, fish laying on the bottom for the whole time. Man, how much longer do I got to do this for? 
you can see when something is used to a freshwater environment, it does not respond well to saltwater and, and vice versa. Now, there's a few fish that can cross over. And you ever have the black mollies? Black mollies will switch from freshwater to saltwater. Now, you've got to do it gradually, but they'll do it. Black mollies, if you have them in freshwater, you actually use them as a starter fish for a reef tank, as long as you bring up the salt slowly and get them used to it. But most fish can't handle it. They just don't, uh, they don't do so, so well with that. So this is what he's telling you. You've got something that lives in this certain environment. And if you say, if you speak to the bitterness, if you speak to the unforgiveness, it doesn't happen just because you want it to. It doesn't happen just because God wants it to. He says, if you say to this sycamine tree, if you say to this mulberry tree, if you speak to it and say, be cast out. That's what you have to speak to it. You have to say, if you have faith as a mustard seed, and you say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots, be pulled up by the roots. And remember, this is a tree that has extremely deep roots. They go all down. They pull, be pulled up by the roots. And be planted in the sea. It would obey you. If you take a sycamine tree and plant it in the sea, what happens to it? It will die. It will be dead. But he says, all you got to do is speak to it. If you got faith as a mustard seed, all you need is mustard seed faith. You can speak to that offense. You can speak to that bitterness, that unforgiveness that's on the inside of you for that brother or sister. You can speak to it and tell it, get cast out, cast it into the sea, put it into an environment where it will die. And it will do it. It will obey you. Now, so everybody wants to go out there and get rid of some trees in the yard. But that's not necessarily what we're talking about here. We're talking about bitterness. We're talking about that unforgiveness. We're talking about that attitude being in you. He says, speak to it. This is what the disciples' question was. We, we, we can't do that. You, you need to increase our faith. If we're going to accomplish what you said to do, you need to increase our faith because how we operate, there are little border right here. We can't do that. We need a bigger border. We need a, we need a bigger area of faith. You need to help us out with this. And... Jesus doesn't increase their faith. He says, if you just got mustard seed sized faith, you can say. Now, he didn't say think. He didn't say imagine. You got to speak to it. Most people don't speak to the bitterness and the unforgiveness. On the inst- they don't speak to it that way. What they usually do is they have bitterness and unforgiveness that's inside and they go and they talk to everybody else about it. Do you know that brother, sister, so-and-so did this to me? Isn't that wrong? Well, it sure is wrong. And see, what we do is we spread. We spread the bitterness to other people. We spread the unforgiveness to other people. What he said to do is speak to it, not speak to other people. Bitterness, I am not having you in my life. Unforgiveness, you, I am not tolerating you here. He says, if you do it, if you speak to it, you will remove this bitterness from your life And if that bitterness is no longer in your life, how easy is it to forgive someone seven times? If you have no bitterness, no offense, how easy is it to to forgive people? 
Or just think of it this way. How easy is it to forgive someone for something they did to someone you don't even know? I don't even know them. You did that to them? All right, did you ask for forgiveness? Well, yeah, I asked for forgiveness. Well, that's great. <laughs> I got no, I got no skin in the game. But you get something they, they offended you. They did something to you. I've got skin in this game now. And that's going to get that root down on the inside of me. But he says, if you speak to it, you pull it up by the roots and we plant it in the sea, it would obey you. It would obey you. So if you, if you have, that's the first thing. Do you have a little bit of faith? You got born again, didn't you? That's a little bit of faith. You can say, now that, that part there said be pulled up by the roots. That's one Greek word there. I wrote it for you in your outline. Thayer's is, defines it this way, to root out, pluck up by the roots. It's actually a compound. It means the word for root combined with the word for out. Now then look at verse 7. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk? And afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all these those things, which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Understand why he puts this here. He has just asked the disciples to do something they see as insurmountable. This is huge. You want me to forgive a person after I rebuke them and they ask me to forgive them and they come and they do it again and they come and they do it again and we repeat that cycle seven times. So you want me to do that And then when I get done it, realize all I did was what I was supposed to do. I didn't do anything special. Now, how many of you went through this and your faith was up to a level that you were able to to walk through this? How many of you are strutting your stuff into the throne room? I did it. Aren't you happy? Aren't you pleased with your servant? And he says, no. Don't be walking into the throne room like you are something special and you just did something great because you weren't offended and because you forgave. No. This is what's expected of you. Can you imagine that? (laughs) This is such a big ask that the disciples feel like they need more faith to do it and Jesus says, no, you don't need more faith. Just do what you got and when you get done, don't expect special reward. This is not a special reward for you. This is what you should do. Just like if a master comes in and the servant is there, does the servant eat and drink first? No. Does the master say, oh, thank you so much. I know that must have been hard for you to come in after working all day and to come in and make the meal for me. But I just want to let you know, I really appreciate it. You know what? Uh, just come on down over here. Sit on down. Let me uh, let me take care of you for, for a little bit here. He says, no, it's not going to happen. He says, so likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, commanded, God commanded, 
We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now, this is only ten verses here. <laughs> Can you imagine going through this and tomorrow could be a whole other day. What happens if it happens again the next day? And still, no special, no special medals. You don't get any, any bronze star to pin on your chest to show other Christians. See that? I'm not offended. Yep, right here. See that? I got it. Did you get one? Ah, so you didn't get the unoffended one, huh? I got the unoffended medal. <laughs> Let's see you do it. He says, no, this is, this is what's commanded of you. This is what you should be doing. And yet, how much of a, of a battle do we face in the area of offense, the area of forgiveness? Thinking we're doing some great thing because we didn't, we didn't get offended. Shouldn't be doing it. But this is just the first story where Jesus addresses this issue of doing something that's impossible, but something that was asked of them to do. Asked of them. This is the first first one we're going to come to. There's, there's some more. Certainly don't be one of the people who offends. Don't be that. Don't be doing things to get other people offended. Stay out of the area. Uh, if you you think about it, you know, if I do something like that, I could offend brother so-and-so. I could offend sister so-and-so. Um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to, I don't want to do that. And so you may, you may walk, stay clear of that. You think about it. I'm a servant here for the kingdom of God. I want to make sure that I operate myself do things correctly. Don't be one who offends. But don't be the offended one either. Because according to Jesus, with the faith that you've got on the inside, if the same person came up to you seven times in a day, you'd be able to forgive them. Disciples picture, boy, if I got that done one time, whew, man, I'd be doing good. Now you may be saying, why should I operate at such a high level when so many around me are not even past cause and offense. You ever ask yourself that? Why should I work toward getting myself to a place where I can be that one who extends forgiveness seven times to the same brother, same sister, in a day, when how many Christians are around who just get offended at the drop of a hat? Well, did you see what they wore? Man, that's an offense. Did you hear what they said? What an offense. Oh, I can't believe that. We just look at some things that have gone on and we just get offended. What an offense. Why in the world should I strive for this level that Jesus has laid out here when other people don't even get past the area of being the offender? Just casually stroll into being the offender. Why should I do that? Well, that's that's why Jesus is dealing with his attitude here at the end. He says, I don't want you to be doing this because you think this is some special, special... This is what you should be doing. This is where I expect you as a believer to be operating. The fact that there's other people that are out here doing these other things, 
that has no bearing on it. This is where you should be. You should be at this level. Come on now, get with it. This is where you should be. Don't be comparing yourself to this. This is what we talked about before. We compare ourselves. Well, that was on a Wednesday night. Um, Ezekiel's passage. They were comparing themselves to themselves. And think, we're doing pretty good. We're not here to compare ourselves to other Christians. We're here to compare ourselves to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? What does the Master say we ought to do? Master, how do you want me to operate? How do you want me to go about my life? And when He says, this is what I want you to do, then we do it. And when we get it done, we don't say, can't wait till He uh, gives me that pat in the back at the end of the day here because I did it. No, you did what you're supposed to do. And that's the attitude we have to have. So that's why he deals with this part here at the end. This is the attitude I want you to have. You did what you were asked. And tomorrow you'll do what you're asked again. And the day after that, you'll do what you're asked again. You see, people who always want the special treatment, the medal because of how they operated, these are the people who operate in offense. These are the people who struggle with the area of forgiveness. And when I struggle with the area of offense and I struggle with the area of forgiveness, I am hindering my faith. Remember when Jesus was teaching about answers to prayers. One of the few things he's ever said in all his teaching that hindered our prayers was unforgiveness. Don't be doing it. You can't afford the cost. Cost too much. We don't need to walk that way. All right. Well, this is the first one. We have a couple more stories. I've been kind of holding on to some of these. And some of the topics I told you we were going to get into, we get into on this one. If you uh, remember a couple of the topics I said we're going to get into here that we hadn't gotten into just yet, they're coming up because this is the section we're doing, that we do this in. When Jesus does a big ask, now hearing this disciples, this was a big ask for them. I am up to it. I have what it takes to get it done. I can do it. Why? Because Jesus asked me. If Jesus asked me, I can do it. I already talked about that aspect just in the command issue. If God gave you the command, obedience to that command is the power to get it done. But whatever it is that God has asked you to do, whatever it is that God has told you to do, you have faith to get it done. Whether it be something physical, something mental, something spiritual, whatever it might be, if God has asked you to get it done, you have the faith you need on the inside to accomplish it. I don't need to go asking, Father, I would love to do that, but you got to increase my faith. Because if I have that mentality, I'm thinking, all right, I'm willing to do what God has said, but I just have to wait for God to come through. When God comes through and He gives me what I need, then I'll do it. Mm-mm. Nope. We cannot go that way. Would you all stand up with me? Glory to God. Father, I thank You that we live in a day when the knowledge of God is so strong. Revelation is all around us. I thank you for all the things that we walk in. I thank you for all the things we have access to. 
And Father, the faith that we have on the inside of us is constantly being fed. It's alive. It's growing. It's getting stronger. No matter what it is that our Father asks us to do, we can do it. Just as in this case, the disciples had such a big ask, they said, increase our faith so that we can do it. Jesus lets them know, no, you can do it with what you got. And after you get done doing it, just because you see it as a big ask doesn't mean that it is a big ask. You just go about your life like you did what was expected. Boy, what a different attitude than sometimes we've had. Father, I thank you. No matter what has gone on in our past, no matter what is going on in our present, and no matter what may come on us in the future, the faith that we have on the inside is all we need to overcome every offense, every opportunity for forgiveness. And that we can speak to people, rebuke them as the word said, in a kind and gentle but frank way and let them know. Because we're not going to speak from a place of selfishness. We're not going to speak from a place of ambition. We're going to speak from a place of love and care for the brother or sister that's across from us. When we walk in that love of God, we cannot help. But to be frank, genuine, and loving. For those offenses that are still in our life that have rooted like that sycamore tree, we just need to speak to it and it will be unrooted and it will be cast out. But we need to speak to it and not keep talking about it. In the name of Jesus, I command that root of bitterness out in my life. And every time it comes up and it wants us to talk about it, we don't talk about it, we cast it out. We speak to it. And Father, we will see these things leave our life. And this command that you said to do will not be hard. We won't see it as some great thing. We will understand that this is just what the Master asked us to do. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over to God. Well, we're glad for all of you folks who joined us on, on Facebook. It was so good to have you here. Brother Keith, come on and close us out.